Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Trigger warning for this episode for discussions about violence against Native women. Someplace underneath. having a real Los Angeles winter. It's a balmy 63 degrees today. I'm wearing a full onesie. Oh yeah, I want to wear my fur coats at night. Like this is this is how you do it. And there's no sun, there's no sun out all day. So dreary. Do you wear just your fur coat and nude? Cuz that's hot. I should. And there was definitely a passage in that Satanist book or whatever I read. <laughs> That they said um, for like a like a exercise for a spell a woman should do yeah. is be naked and then put on a trench coat that like fits you. Mm-hmm. And then as long as it's a safe neighborhood, just like walk around in it, walk around outside in some heels, yeah. and like rediscover your sexuality and your sexual energy. And I was like, fuck yeah, rock and roll. Yeah, I love it. In a safe neighborhood, of course. But I don't know yeah. what that even means. I don't even know what that means either. Like certainly not down Hollywood Boulevard because that's one of the craziest places I've ever seen. Yeah. And like not at an elementary school. No. Yeah. Not an elementary school and not on British Columbia where it's freezing and there's men. That's just too cold for your nips. Too cold for the nips. Definitely don't wear high heels out in the woods. You, no. can't, you can't run away. I, if anybody would try to do it, it would be me. And that's why I can't live out there because I make <laughs> bad choices. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then that's where we left off last time as we kind of broke down the whole layout and what was going on up there. And I know we now want to talk about some of the specific, specific cases. cases and we can't talk about all of them because there's too many. So many. And by the way, welcome to Someplace Underneath. I'm Natalie Jean and joining me is Amber Nelson. Hello. And we are going to probably revisit some of these later on because the stories are, are all so sad and horrible and... Um, it's a twisted tale. It is very them. twisted. And each case could have its own book, really. For sure. Um, and sadly, some of them, which I'll talk about, barely have any information out there, no matter how hard you look for it. But they deserve their own book, too. They had a life. They had people. They had friends and family and yeah. a story to tell. So maybe someday we'll be able to learn a little bit more about some of them. But I wanted to start off by just going back to talk about Ramona Wilson. 
Ramona actually was found. Unfortunately, she was one of the ones who didn't make it. Uh, so she was missing for a brief amount of time, but she was her remains were discovered. Um, but I wanted to talk about her because we talked about her mom a lot last time when we were talking about the residential school situation. Yeah. So I don't know if you recall last week we talked about her mother, Matilda, how she was gone from her parents for seven years and it really I mean, just ruined their whole family and everything. So then then we get to the next generation. So when Matilda has her kids, a lot of people in that hood, that part of the country, and I mean, lots of places, Matilda started a family super young after she had you know grown up and kind of and returned from residential school. Well, I mean, she um, had like a forced adulthood as a child. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't, she didn't have parents. Like, no. She wasn't, she had parents, but they were taken from her. Yeah, whisked away on a train into a place where they, she was beaten if she ran away, forced to labor, yeah. assaulted. Yeah. So she kind of just wanted to have a family and she started young and she ended up with, she had five kids by the time she was 21. Wow. Which props to her because I would have just run screaming into the night. If that was me. But I guess that's how you do it. Your body bounces back, babe. Oh, yeah. It's probably, yeah, you get, you stay tight. Stay get tight. Him, get them get young. Yeah. Pop them out in a field. Keep going. That's the only way I think I could have really done it is if I don't, I don't want kids really, mm -hmm. but I can see how at now looking back, if you want to have kids really young, they get old enough to get out of the house, then you're relatively young and you can just have like a whole second life afterwards. Yeah. You're in your thirties and ready to party. Yeah, exactly. But but they're not, not my tale. <laughs> not this tale. They are not ready to party. Their remains have been found, though. No. Yeah. They actually probably did not want to party at all. Mm -mm. So at this point, when she was 21, she had five kids. Matilda moved her family to Smithers, which is a place that we've talked about and will continue to talk about. So Smithers is basically the end points. The two princes are the end points of the highway. Mm-hmm. Smithers is not exactly in the middle, but it's towards the middle. It's one of the bigger towns it's on like a, the stretch. You want to get gas, you stop off at Smithers. Well, Smithers is actually like the quote unquote cutesiest one of them all. Um, they have some, they had this weird alpine theme in the main square, which is really weird considering like there's not a huge connection to the Alps in that part of Canada. It's almost... Well, they started that theme in the 70s. So they basically made all of the businesses on Main Street have like a Swiss Alps look to them. That could be cute. Yeah, except like, I don't know. It's just, it's cute. I, there's still a lot of the buildings still look like that. I've Google mapped it and they, they mm -hmm. still have it. It's genuinely cute as hell. But it sort of feels pointed almost like it's the most white people theme I can think of. Mm. You know, besides if it was like Fjellhe Bunker out there you know what i mean yeah so it's weird because there was so much culture that was native to that area that they just decided to know, like no we're gonna go super aryan with the theme i don't know it could have just been completely innocent i have no idea but that's what that town is and it's still the most like touristy mm -hmm. in that area it's cute so matilda moved her family out there and that is where her final child ramona was born on february 15th 1978 so by the time Ramona was 15, like she had all of her siblings were a bit older than her. So they all doted on her and she was the fun, bubbly new baby and everybody just loved her and her bigger brothers always played with her. And mm -hmm. she was a happy, driven teenager. She held down, you know, a really, really responsible job in a diner and stayed in school and she wanted to go to college. 
And like I said, she ended up becoming one of the missing and then was eventually found murdered. Damn. Yeah, she was just she disappeared when she was hitching. Like we talked about hitching is a huge part of the culture. Because there's no buses. Like I say culture, but it's like it's a huge part of what they are forced to do. Yeah. Uh, So forced culture. (laughs) Um, So she was hitching to uh, dance. She was going to meet up with her friend Crystal on June 4th, 1994. And her remains were discovered in 95 in a nearby area. So a whole year people were like, where is Ramona? Yeah, she was gone. She was completely missing for a year. Um, And as you probably can imagine, and I've already talked about, there was some issues with the way the police were handling it. Oh, yeah. Swept under the rug. Oh, we don't know. We don't care. Yeah. And and kind of just the way that they would treat Native girls would just be like, oh, they're so wild. She's probably just partying. She'll be back. Whatever. We'll find her. Don't worry about it too much. And like you need three days to find them or else it's going to be substantially harder. Right. And we'll talk about that, too, and why that needs that is changing. But it needs to change faster. But yeah, so uh, her friend Crystal, remember that name, because she comes up multiple times in this, unfortunately. She was trying to meet her friend Crystal at the stance, and then she was hitching, and that was never found. And they still mm-hmm. don't know who did it to her. But the missing and murdered cases go back much further than that, of course. I'm sure women have always been taken. taken but the ones that we associate with the term Highway of Tears started around the 70s. And one of the first ones that's ever kind of connected to that storyline is Jenny Sampari. And I really, I've been trying to find online the appropriate way to say her last name, and I haven't had luck yet, but... S-A-M-P-A-R-E. Yes. So she was born on September 10th, 1953 into a First Nations family. She was 18 years old whenever she disappeared. She was one of the first young women to vanish, at least as far as the present records go. Virginia was a quiet person raised under the watchful eye of her parents and older siblings. The Sampari kids were brought up to work hard. Theirs was a strict household where the kids weren't allowed to run wild or stay out late at night. Virginia had celebrated her birthday the previous month. On October 14th, 1971, it seemed she got into an argument with her mom and left the house around 11 p.m., I tried to ask her what was wrong, and she just went straight for the door, opened the door and walked out. Violet Sampari, Virginia's sister-in-law, said 46 years later. Virginia's mother told Violet not to worry about going after the girl, certain she'd be back soon after she'd cooled off. And that's like a normal teenage response to like yeah. get in an argument with your parents and then walk out. Granted, yeah. it's, it's 11 p.m. It's kind of late. I'm worried for her like, I mean, in that area. But like it's a normal reaction. Yeah, I would have gone out I would have gotten a huge fight with my mom and left at 11 probably two years 16 or 15 years old at that you know yeah that juncture so so your mom was like don't worry about it she'll come back but she didn't come back the family would later hear that she and her cousin had set out for the store by the train station just a few kilometers away the cousin left her for a moment to collect his bicycle when he returned she was gone Mm. He'd later tell them he heard the sound of a car door slam. They are still currently looking for her. Wow, that means somebody was probably following them and waiting till the male in the group boogied a second away and then, bop, get them. It's quite possible. However, one of the problems is that because they wouldn't address it fast enough, there's now speculation that ranges from everything like fallen into the river, got taken, was sad about her boyfriend, committed suicide. So in 
a lot of the searching became completely grassroots. However, there was a government campaign that was finally organized in 2005 called EPANA. E, the letter E, is for the jurisdiction of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that presides over BC. I always almost call them the Royal Canadian Kilted Yaksmen, thanks to Ren and Stimpy. I can't ever get that out of my head. Interesting. All I remember from Ren and Stimpy is like the booger monsters. There's, yeah, there's all kinds of boogery, monstery show things. show is nasty and oh, yeah, like, not gross. meant for kids. Definitely not. No, it's still, do- it, it messed my brain up, I'm sure. <laughs> I still think of the Canadian police as the royal kilted yaksmen. That's probably not good. So that's the letter E, and then it's Dash Pana, which is P-A-N-A. It's the name of an Inuit goddess who cares for souls before heaven or reincarnation. So that's the, the name of this group that the RCMP founded in 2005. Yeah. However, women like Ginny haven't made it to the short list of victims that the program is working on. So basically, EPANA is, was created to open up old cases, like cold cases, and, and specifically based on the Highway of Tears because there were so many that were never solved. However, they have this long list of requirements to be considered on that list. And it has to be like very specific, like needs to have known to have been in peril or something, some, some very weird list of rules. And it sucks because... Just because they didn't see her get clawed off into the darkness or like heard her screams, they're just like, well, we don't know. She could, she could have done anything because they've never found, you know, she's missing. My so, God. But I still, I bet they still have like a long list of people. They have, uh, currently, I think there's 18 people that they focus on the list, but the list is so long that it's such a small amount. And they have made some movements in it, but there's still a lot of the cases that they've focused on haven't been solved. And it's partly because when they made Epana, it was supposed to, you know, be this collective that was solely focused on these specific cases. But what happens, and they promised that they were not going to have people transferred. It was like this dedicated team. Yeah. And then within a year, people start getting transferred out. And then these new people come in and it's, they don't know the story. They have to be, it's like them starting fresh. You have to basically- caught up. Yeah. And it just would cause all these laxes and delays and miscommunications. And it's really because of that, they haven't been able to get that much accomplished. Mm, I bet like some of the sheriff has to do with that. I don't, yeah. It just seems like- um, Because then why would you like have all these team members keep going and coming? Like it it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And sometimes when those, in those cases, if you read about it, sometimes it's nefarious and sometimes it's just sort of like chaotic. Like some of the police stations aren't run that well. And Yeah. I've seen some video footage of inside a police station and it's like people's files that are very sensitive that are just kind of laying out because they don't have a drawer to put it in. They're all multiple officers sharing one tiny room. So there's no privacy. Yeah. There's, yeah. And the, the, there's just such a, a hierarchy of issues going on here. Yeah. But yeah, what it boils down to is that the, the program itself hasn't really solved that much. And also people like Jenny don't get addressed on it. And this happened in the 70s. So Roddy Sampari, Virginia's brother, told the commission of one such instance of not being told uh, a certain information about her, his sister. And this is this is like in recent years that he's talking about this because they would try to go talk to the cops all the time being like, please, can we be a part of this? Let me, can we see her case file? Can 
they cops would say, we've told you everything we know. And then he finds out, you know, decades later, they had all this other information that they never revealed to him. Oh, my God. So according to him, he found out the day before the family's testimony, because they were able to speak to the RCMP in decades later on, they'd been called to a meeting with the investigators, the first time the family had spoken to the police in years. Their last in- interaction had been when an officer collected DNA from them during the excavation of the Picton farm in case Virginia's remains were found there. We'll talk about Picton. Mm-hmm. Um, during the meeting, police told the family that a former chief counselor from the village had reported in the days after Virginia vanished, finding footprints near the river believed to be hers. No one had ever told the family this information. We didn't even know about it, said Virginia's sister-in-law, Violet. So this is something that's really, really shocking to us and was very upsetting to find out. To me, that's assuming that our sister went into the river and drowned and they never, ever even told the family that. Because you could have been searching the river. You could have been searching for her. Like, immediately gotten taken care of. Yeah. And so we still don't know if that's what happened. Yeah. But they apparently had these bits of evidence and pieces of information that they just wouldn't tell the family for literally like 40 years. So there wasn't a lot that was really covered or explained. And it was messy. And there was too many people involved and not enough people paying attention to what was happening. And since that that happened, there was really only clues. And so with Jenny, for example, her boyfriend went missing very shortly before she disappeared. And then his body was found after Jenny went missing from an apparent suicide. So there's all these weird little things that could be leading towards what happened to her, but there's just not enough diligence and interest drummed up to... Put it together. Yeah. So these people just live with this ghost of this this woman in their family who... They don't know where she is. We, they don't know what happened to her. She could technically still be somewhere, you know? Yeah, she could have went to the river to take a bath and then just like boogied on somewhere else. Decided she had enough. Who knows? Maybe she had a mental break, you know? The night of her disappearance on October 14th, 1971, like we were saying, she was seen crying at her mother's house and seemed despondent. So again, Jenny's cousin Alvin was reported to be the last to have seen her and he was walking with her along Highway 16 when he left to get a jacket and then rejoin her. Alvin believed at that time that Simpari was going to a store that was close, like I said, and Alvin's house was close to where he parted from her, just south of the highway. Then it was reported that Alvin came back to the highway and heard a vehicle door close, but Simpari was nowhere to be seen. So as far as I can tell, the cousin's never been considered a suspect, but it's really hard to tell even to this day because her family doesn't even know a lot of what that was investigated. Yeah. So Jenny would be in her 60s now and the family still looks for her and they still take birthday gifts to her, uh, the spot she was last seen. Oh, man. And, and they just always go in the, and tell her, like, we're not going to forget about you. Don't don't be afraid of us ever forgetting, you know? That's good. And I'm sure she, like, can feel that help wherever she is. I hope so, you know? It's all you can do sometimes. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, 
we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. And then, so the, the next cases I would like to talk about are the cases of Delphine Ann Nicole and Cecilia Ann Nicole. So as you can probably tell, they are related. Um, they didn't disappear together, but I wanted to talk about them both because their families had to deal with so much. Mm. Um, they also had a, a, a family member who was murdered. These two are considered missing still. So Delphine Nicole is a member of the Wet'suwet'en, I believe, tribe and was the youngest of her family born on a farm near Smithers again, the Alpine town, Mm -hmm. the land of the, uh, what are those horns called? Ricola. Yeah. Like that kind of area. So I think I'm being racist against Alpine people, but that's what I imagine it is. So uh, yeah, she was born in a town or in a little farm right near there. And she was actually born in the same hospital as Ramona Wilson. Hmm. And she was known as a really like free, wild, adventurous child who loved animals and was like a happy kid. When Delphine was only 11, however, her father died and Delphine moved to the neighboring village of Telqua. Telqua. T-E-L-K-W-A. Yeah, to live with her mom. In 1990, Delphine was a teen and her mom, Judy, fell into a coma from a bad surgery in Prince George. Oh, so like her dad's dead and her mom's in a bad coma. Yeah. She's this adventurous little child that loves animals. Yeah. In a bad situation. And she doesn't have her parents now, which is really sad because Judy, like she was just in to get a surgery and like something went really wrong. And then she ended up in a coma. Mm. She did recover from the coma eventually, but she was in it for months. So... That hospital in Prince George was a four-hour drive from the farm outside of Smithers where they lived. Mm -hmm. So Delphi went to live with her uncle Frank who lived near them, but he was at least an adult who could help her get through the day, you know? So on Wednesday, June 13th in 1990, approximately 2 p.m., Delphi told her uncle that she was going into town to meet up with some friends, including Crystal Grenke. Do you remember me talking about Crystal? Mm -hmm. Crystal is, uh, she is a little white girl who ended up befriending multiple of these girls who went missing. And Uh so she was around all of these kids and she had different facets of her friends groups going missing into the night. Do you think she, did she help to try to look for them or was she? Oh yeah, yeah. We'll talk about it. She definitely did. She didn't do like, this is more of a thing that it's just so tragic that this town, this area is so small that this kid was friends with a bunch of the kids who disappeared. Oh my God. Imagine being like, oh, these are all my friends from like a class photo. And you're like, yeah. that's John. He went missing. That's Delphine. She went missing. Yeah. Can you even imagine like your little group of friends from high school and 30% of them are nowhere. Like they don't, they're just missing in action. Gone. Um, at least I know my friends like they have jobs at Walmart right now. Yeah. I can't get rid of my fucking friends from high school. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. They actually don't talk to me anymore. So... <laughs> Uh, that night, Delphi's, the last night she was seen, Delphi's friends remember her asking them if they wanted to spend the night at her house because her mom wasn't home because she was in the hospital. The girls thought it was unusual because she never asked any of them before to spend the night. The girls, however, weren't able to because of school and work the next day. 
After the group parted ways, Delphi called her uncle to tell him she was heading home. So Delphi, that that was the most unusual thing, which is not very unusual. Like, can I stay the night? She probably just was tired of staying at her uncle's house. Yes, and she just... It was maybe out of character, but that was the only thing they could come up with that was seemed out of place for her that night. So she called her uncle, started to head home. She was hitchhiking to get back because what That's are you going to do? What you do? So she was on Highway 16 and she just never made it. Uh, in the following days, when Delphi's family reported her missing, they were met with suggestions that she had probably run off and she would return soon. Oh, my God. They never just run off. And also, like, what kind of can you imagine like your friend being like, can I stay and you're like, no. And then they go missing. I would feel so much guilt. Yeah, which is not fair. You know, the kids, it's not their kids' fault. And I'm sure they, they did feel terrible about it. And because Delphi was known to the police as like a very minor offense, juvenile delinquent, like, you know, theft and mischief and all that. But like we were saying last time, they would throw these girls into juvie for anything. Or just anything. Like stuff that like anybody else would do to be deemed a little little weird. Yeah, I mean, stuff I, I definitely did all of these things she's talking about. And so she had been in, yeah, she'd been in out juvie. So they kind of gave her this reputation and they're just like, oh, she's such a bad egg. You know, I'm sure she's just out doing drugs or something. And they said so they didn't really look for her. That's awful. And anybody like they always look for like any little thing in your past. And if it's a girl, especially it's like, well, her parents were divorced. So maybe she was asking for it. Yeah, exactly. She's a child. They, exactly. And, and but they didn't treat her that way. They definitely treated her like she was a hardened criminal. Yeah. Um. And since there was no help from the police, the family was left to search for Delphi on their own, knocking on doors and driving through Vancouver looking for her. The cops wouldn't listen to them, imploring that she would never abandon her mom while she was in a coma. It was just out of character for this girl to just, she loved her mom. She wouldn't have just like left her mom to die in the hospital alone. No. So speaking of, because she didn't have her mom or her parents at all, and no real, you know, she had her uncle, but he was just sort of there to keep her alive and he had his own shit going on. So the cops wouldn't take it seriously. The search was left to the children who Ugh. knew her, literal children, Crystal, her friend, Crystal and Delphi's siblings. They had to take to the streets themselves and they had no resources. So these were these kids trying to make missing posters for her. And because nobody had any money, they couldn't afford to get the color posters made of the with her picture on it. That's how bad it was up there. And, and nobody cared. Nobody, nobody would help, would help them. them. Nobody. It was going to be like a three hundred dollar cost to make these flyers, and nobody had the money. Oh so God. these kids are just like begging adults to help them find this girl, and they're just not interested. The adults are like, "Nah, she's a, a juvenile delinquent. Yeah. Nah, it's fine." I yeah. Mean, I care if you are a juvenile delinquent. Yeah, fuck that. It doesn't Find matter. them. It doesn't matter. It definitely doesn't matter. You don't have to be like a grade A, like valedictorian boy scout to be rescued. That's nonsense. You're a human being. Yeah, especially a child human being, you know? Like, yeah. she's a kid. No matter how much they want to treat them like they're adults, because they definitely do that with those kids. They make them grow up really, really young and then treat them like adult criminals when oh they're God. still teenagers. Like, man, when I was 15, I was definitely stealing Robitussin with my friends and then getting all fucked up and sleeping in garages and running away and stuff. And 
I imagine if I went missing and my mom called the police, they would look for me because I was they my mom and dad were married in a little white couple and they probably would have taken it more seriously. My mom and her church in Mississippi, the um the grandmother walked in on a sixteen year old and the preacher having sex. So she's sixteen. So like that's pedophilia and rape both combined. You can't consent at that age. Yeah. And uh people kind of turned their nose up at it because her parents were divorced. Oh god. How stupid is that? And there was a well, she had it coming because by and they like blame her. What do you she's sixteen years old? Oh, I hate everything about that story. Yeah. And even women are on the side. They're like, well, you know, she was because, you know, the women in that town get their quote unquote like comfort and stability from the men they're with, and the men all said, Forget about it. Was the priest saying he was his he got a boner because of the divorce? Probably. He was just like, it's just yeah. a thing I like. I can't help it. We probably like picked her out specifically. Yeah, vulnerable for sure. Yeah, because she's vulnerable and he knew that like, you know, wh- who's she going to say? That's probably why they pick out the indigenous girls because who... Oh, definitely. Yeah, you report it to the police and they'll be like, I don't care. And then literally their friends have to go find them. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what it, these women uh, who become activists out of complete necessity keep saying over and over again is you are treating these girls like they are trash, like they don't matter. And it, clearly they were, you know? It's not like them just saying some shit. So no one would help them. For Finally, after four months after her disappearance, the... Interior News, which I believe is a newspaper, ran a story about Delphi. Her family and friends kept trying to raise interest and reward money, but there was just no energy behind the case. It wasn't like one of the cute little missing kids Mm -hmm. because it sucks that you have to think about like the privileged missing, but she really was one of the like less missing Mm. from the broader society. Because, you know, she was delinquent. What 15-year-old has an attitude problem and has done some bad shit? Not me. (laughs) Definitely not me. Some vigilante justice finally does come through town. Well, not, I wish it was more like cowboy justice, but it was more like just a a woman, a divorced woman. Don't. Came in. Yeah, don't fuck with a divorced woman. No. Her name was Rhonda Morgan, and she founded a group called the Missing Children Society of Canada. And she started taking some of these cases on that were happening around Highway 16. Rhonda is interesting because she founded this org in the 80s after she had gotten divorced from her husband and she didn't like what she was doing. And she was just like, I want to change. And she was watching the news and saw a story about missing children in Alberta. And she was like, I got to find these kids. Yeah. And you can, that just shows that you can make a change in your life whenever. Yeah. You don't have to be like, well, I guess I'm 30. This is my whole life now. Oh, no. Fuck that. No. No. Sometimes you don't even know what you want till you're in your 30s. Absolutely. Don't don't ever listen to anybody tell you you need to have all your shit figured out in your 20s. That's no. Stupid. I heard somebody on the internet be like, by the time you're 27, you have it all figured out. I'm like, 27? <laughs> Get out. Who said that? Just some fucking nerd. Ugh. <laughs> And then they said, oh, women are, by the time they're 18, they're fully formed in the brain and men aren't until their 30s. That's, that is scientifically untrue. That is not true. That is scientifically untrue. And then he flipped around again. He said, and then, so therefore a 30 year old woman is always going to think like an 18 year old. I'm like, you sound like a fucking loser, dude. I mean, that just sounds like a dude trying to justify being a weirdo. Yes. Yeah. So she's fun. She just decided I'm going to become a detective. Yeah. She kind of started out by hitting up these already existing missing child orgs, but a lot of them were focused on getting the word out, but not actually hitting the pavement. And she really wanted to do that to like find actively find the kids. Mm-hmm. So she created her own little outfit 
And she would bring on like retired detectives or private detectives to actually physically go out and look for the girls and the women. So Rhonda and one of her detectives, whose name is Fred, helped further Delphi's case when they showed up in 93. So a couple years later. At the time, it was still sort of being treated as a runaway case. But there simply wasn't any reason to think this by any of the people who knew her. Her friends had no cause to think she was running away. And a 15-year-old, if they're upset and being dramatic about wanting to leave, they always tell their friends. They don't, there's no introspective 15-year-old who's like, I need to go on my own journey. Yeah. And doesn't slip and talk to their friends. Because usually when you're 15, you run away. It's because you're feeling over-emotional, even if it's about a horrible, true thing. Like, even if you're being abused, you will always want to talk about it with somebody. Yeah, with somebody. And you ideally usually don't want to run away. You want it to be kind of like solved and taken yeah. care of right then. That's why you tell somebody about it. Exactly. You're, you're crying out for help usually at that age, you know, in one way or another. And so they just, it did, nobody in her, her life bought that. It didn't make any sense for her to just decide to leave without telling anybody. Well, they were there Fred and Rhonda learned of her cousin, Cecilia, who had also disappeared a year before Delphi in 1989. So Cecilia Nichol, born in 1971, boarded a bus in Smithers, again, Smithers, with a friend in August 89, heading to Vancouver to visit her mother. According to Fred's report, Cecilia called the woman who had raised her since 1983 a few days later to say she was okay and would be back in Smithers in a couple of weeks. So Cecilia was raised by another woman and she was in contact with her mother. So she was going back to visit her birth mother. And, you know, in the 80s, you would just kind of give somebody a call and be like, hey, I'm alive. There wasn't any real texting situation. You wouldn't send a telegram or anything. No. So you would just call and be like, I'm cool. I'll see you in a couple weeks or I'll give you a shout soon. And you'd hear from them again later. Remember whenever people didn't know where you were all the time? Oh, yeah. And you'd be like, uh, how about next Tuesday? Let's meet up at Walmart, 7 p.m. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then you both were yeah. just at Walmart, 7 p.m. Yeah. You got you got to show up. Yeah. Now, now you have like a million excuses why you don't have to go there. So she told her, this woman who was raising her she'd be back, but she didn't return. It's not clear whether she showed up in Vancouver, though. Cecilia was never registered with the Missing Children's Society, but Fred decided to investigate her disappearance. Cecilia, because the disappearance was so close to Delphi, Fred took her very seriously, said Rhonda. We took her on as a piggyback to Delphi's case. He looked for her in Vancouver, too, but found no sign she'd been there. I'm convinced she wasn't there, said Rhonda. Hmm. So... It's very likely, or at least plausible, that Cecilia was taken on Highway 16, too, or disappeared in some way or another on Highway 16. But there's such limited information about her. Even though Delphi's not gotten that much attention, Cecilia got next to none wow. because she had even fewer connections. And, and, and you you're know, from a rural town. Like, yeah. Even like... Even when I was in the 90s in Louisiana, you could absolutely just kind of fuck off for a week. No one would know where you are. Oh, yeah. Or like even really have a lot of info on you. Maybe like your school activities. But yeah. That's about it. Yeah. And because Cecilia came from a little bit of a, a split home, she spent in her young teens, she'd run away and 
had been on the streets before. And yeah. so nobody took it seriously. I mean, people in her personal life took it seriously, but nobody in, you know, police or anything would ever care about her. I also feel bad what I said earlier about my friends all working at Walmart. They do. They have other jobs and like better jobs. I'm sorry, guys. They're doing great. <laughs> but hey, Walmart's a great job. You know, that's a great job, too. My dad worked at Walmart. Absolutely. And I will discontinue judging all your friends. <laughs> so, uh... Regarding Delphi, too, so we know very little about Cecilia, but regarding Delphi, it wasn't until 94 in the midst of the Wilson family's comparatively high profile campaign, which is really sad to say because Ramona Wilson also barely got coverage. But I guess compared to Delphi, it was more covered. It was, you know, three years later after Delphi disappeared that her name began to appear a little more regularly in the local paper. As her friend Crystal said, if you think Ramona was not reacted upon, Delphi was even worse. Fred told a reporter that he was convinced the person responsible for Delphine's appearance was from the Smithers or Terrace area and recommended a media blitz, including a reenactment of her getting picked up along the highway. I mean, it could just be even one person doing a bunch of this, like serial killers living in this beautiful Swiss Alpen town. Yeah, well, we'll talk about the the potentials. Okay. Yeah, it sucks. There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of people. And you could just go to that town as like a tourist attraction. Imagine like going to this little touristy town, going to a little pub, getting a beer, striking up a conversation with a stranger, and then that stranger is a serial killer. You had no idea. Yep. Can't trust any. Don't never go out pick up a beer with a stranger. That's what I say. And especially if it's a tourist town, like wouldn't you want a blast out so we can find this person? So oh, they yeah. stop doing that. Yeah, or for did, sure. Or but it you, was because it was ninety five percent native women. They just didn't care. They didn't even care. Or do you think because it was a tourist town, they're like, no, 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 hush it up, hush it up. We don't want people knowing. I think it was more so that they just didn't draw the attention consideration of the greater society there because it was minority native and yeah. it was also a town that was raised already on racism like so badly so he wanted to include that media blitz but in the story quoted his august 93 report one cannot help but feel that someone must have witnessed her hitchhiking and possibly being picked up efforts should also be in place to have the municipality and or Native Association offer a substantial reward, which should be part of the news blitz. It was the Missing Children's Society of Canada that eventually coordinated a reenactment and offered up the $10,000 reward for information on Delphine or Ramona. So it's fucking big ups to Rhonda. Wow. Don't mess with the divorced woman. So Judy, that's Delphine's mom who was in the coma, who eventually came out of the coma. And they were like, your daughter's missing. I mean, that's like what happened. She woke up from the coma and they're like, Oh, by the way, um, sorry. So they put me back in the coma. Seriously. She went on to search for Delphi until her own death. And she was afraid that the cops had really overlooked important info at the beginning, specifically, I'm sure even more so because she had no parent to speak for her. If the RCMP had acted more quickly, she would later tell a reporter they might have found her. Ugh. Rhonda's organization under Fred's tutelage had quickly learned that it is vital to treat every case of a missing child as a worst case scenario. This means taking it seriously from the start and immediately getting to work on door-to-door -door inquiries and establishing a timeline. When you don't take it seriously at the beginning, you lose out on too much valuable information, says Rhonda. Yeah, because you might have seen it happen and then you're like, it was a man in a red coat and a blue truck. But then talk to me a week later, it was a man with a blue coat and a red truck. Right. You know? Absolutely. 
And this idea, it ran contrary to common police practice of waiting a couple of days before starting the search, which I'm sure most people have heard of the first 48 hours. Like, you got to wait, got to wait on those first couple of days. And um, I've been listening and, and reading up on some um, detectives talking about how that actually it never should have been that way, but it's become really outdated at this point to have that wait period because now you can tell pretty quickly if because of the fact we can't ever hide from people that like we're in constant contact. Mm-hmm. Usually you can tell if somebody's missing very quickly if they're not answering their phone and their phone's dead. Yeah. And if they're not the kind of person that I will let our listeners know, I will never just kind of run away. All right. So, so if, I, if I'm not, if you're not answering texts, I need to get out there. Yes. I need to get on my, my, get my bullhorn out and my, my tank. I don't know why I would need a tank. Get the tank out, girl. I'm missing. (laughs) Where's Amber? (laughs) Um, So yeah, now they're, they're really trying to push to get rid of that time period because it truly is, if you are doing, especially a kid underage, if you're doing a 48 hour wait period because you think, oh, they're just running away or they're just being stupid or having, you are losing the most valuable time if there is any foul play going on. Yeah. And kids, like you said earlier, they don't go on this like solitary road trip. Right. They're a child. Right. They're going to tell people. Exactly. Which means probably they got taken by somebody or at the very, you know, the very least got lost and they need help. Mm -hmm. So Judy wrote a letter in the paper before her death pleading for people to help find her daughter. That's so sad and awful. I don't really want to read it here because I know we're already doing a podcast about horrible shit, but it's like going to bum you out. So too much. Just go read it on your own time. If you want to read it, it's in the Highway of Tears book. It was basically her final plea to for people to help her before she died herself. As for Delphi's cousin, Celia, there's even, like I said, less information about her. And all we really know about her is that she was last seen near Smithers on Highway 16 on October 1st, 1989. And there's been no other side of her since they've never found any any bit of her no not even like body parts not even like a shoelace you know just missing in the ether but nobody was really looking that hard uh and then i wanted to briefly mention some of the other instances that can happen like that of margaret newski so margaret newski is a native woman she's never been recovered but it's likely she is no longer among us on this mortal coil uh, because she was 89 when she disappeared in 2004. Somebody stole an 89-year-old woman? Well, we don't know. She had dementia and there's a large chance that it wasn't foul play Mm. and that she had wandered into a wooded area because she was a trained trapper and it may have just been part of her instinctual like, you know, Uh, lizard brain. Yeah, I'll Um, get the squirrels and then just bye-bye. Yeah, and she, she had like an active life. She would play bingo and stuff, but she was starting to get dementia and I hope that it was an easy, peaceful sleep. You know, maybe she just went to the forest and kind of decided to go there yeah. and go to sleep there. Um, I mention it because she was still hitchhiking at, 89 years at old. this time when she disappeared. That, that is the activity she was engaged in around the last time she was seen. She was 89 years old and she only had the only mode of transportation she had to get around was hitchhiking. Mm. That is... That is so disgraceful and so wrong on so many fucking levels that that woman had no choice if she wanted to go anywhere but to get into a stranger's car at 89 years old. In a developed country, there is no excuse for that to be happening. 
it makes me furious. Like, how can you imagine getting to that point in your life and still having to beg people to take you across town to go to the store? Yeah, you need milk. You need almonds. You need, to like, su- sustenance. And she liked playing fucking bingo, man. Yeah. She should be able to do that. They'll get in some weirdo's car. But that's my, basically, I want to point that out because, again, this goes back to the fact that there's not public transportation out there enough. And then you have um, the other, another side of this is you have people like Mary Madeline George, whose information is so limited. There's only one extremely low res photo of her that I can find anywhere online. And she disappeared. It was just in 2005. It's not like it was from like the 40s. Pretty modern. Yeah. She was reportedly walking at 6 p.m. to a clinic located at the Sprucelin Mall in Prince George when she was last seen on July 24th of 2005. She suffered from uh, amnesia and depression. So I think her clinic was actually probably to get medication or something. Yeah. Um, That's all that we know about her. Uh, The photo is really hard to make out. She looks youngish, at least in her, you know, the oldest 40s, I think younger. And even on all the sites that have been started being developed for these missing Native women, there's no other information, which is one of the other issues with the uh, the number that we have of missing women is much likely much higher. Yeah, because you probably just never even knew anything about this person. Yeah, cause she was mostly on a reservation and she probably didn't have a lot of family to speak of or money or resources. And so her life is now just like this grainy picture. Mm. And then the last one I want to touch on is this story of Immaculate Basil. I just want to touch it because like so I mentioned earlier, there's so many stories here and I want to come back and do apps on individual people, including Mackie Basil, because her story is really interesting and strange, but it's completely unresolved. Uh, and I just wanted to talk about her briefly. But while we last her last known sighting wasn't directly on the highway, it was a little bit north of it on near a reservation. So I think it counts as part of the Highway of Tears because it's the highway was the closest road to this happening. She grew up in foster care and her parents were both survivors of residential school. Mm. Her mom was actually expecting compensation from the Canadian government when like the class action sort of lawsuit situation happened for um, like basically retribution for the abuse she experienced in residential school. Yes. But during that time when she was waiting for the money, she was struck and killed by a semi. Oh, my God. In Prince George. Yeah, I think it was just a complete accident. Yeah, she was walking around on the road? Probably. I don't know. I couldn't find any further information on that at the top, but I think it was just a really bad, unfortunate accident. Mackie's father never filed to be a part of that lawsuit or that class action because he always refused to talk about what happened to him at that school. And to to be a part of it, you would have had to have reported everything that happened. Yeah, so. you have to like go back and relive it. There's, yeah. there's a lot of, um, there's a friend of mine whose mother went under surgery and had a lot of complications from the surgery that was ill part on the doctor. Like the doctor should have known better on, uh. on a lot of things. So she... Um, doesn't want to sue because you have to relive those experiences. Yeah, for sure. And her kids don't understand, like, why don't you sue mom? And I'm like, because she's got to mentally go through it, tell a lawyer, and they're going to, if you if you miss what you had for breakfast that day, you are not only going to lose the case, but then be called a liar right, for the rest of your life. Exactly. It's such... Ugh, it just sucks. Like, even if you want justice in that way, you basically have to make your life miserable in order to fight for anything like and that. And just for like the slightest bit of a comfort. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. People so, will probably still look at you like a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. It just it just 
there's no win really you know so her dad never even wanted to be a part of that so eventually he was with just him and the eight kids alone and they had problems and child welfare eventually came and separated all of them so her and her seven siblings basically got like sent to the wind. Yeah. Well, if you're raised as a child who was beaten and that's the love you were given and then now you have children, what do you what do you expect this parent's going to do? Yeah. And I don't even think it necessarily came from a child abuse as much as like poverty and lack yeah. of resources and stuff. And he probably wasn't capable of taking care of all of them. She had a really bad time, unsurprisingly, in foster homes. A couple of them were okay, but a couple of them she was abused. So she basically emancipated herself at 16 and managed to graduate on her own wow. uh, of high school. Wow. Yeah. And so then after she did that, she returned to Tachi, which is the right near the or is the reservation right above Highway 16. So she went back to where she came from because she didn't she was kind of removed from her culture during that fostering period. And she wanted to see her community and be a part of that. Yeah. So she just went back home. By all, all accounts, she was very quiet. She was a homebody, very thoughtful, a very considerate person, uh, was not a partier. She was super close with two of her sisters who were also in separate foster homes, but they remained close and talked on the phone every single day. She went out on a very rare outing to a party and she failed to get back to her sisters the following day. Because they speak on the phone every day. Right. Mm -hmm. So they immediately knew something was wrong. This was just very recent. 2013. Yeah. This just happened in 2013. So we're at the point where if you're missing, you like if you haven't responded to somebody in a day or so, something's wrong, you know, in, in general. So when her uh, and her sisters who talked all the time, when she didn't get back to them the following day, they were already immediately very worried. But there was at least, there was that party she was supposed to have been at. There, she was accounted for there. She, people testified that she had been there and she was drinking, oh. which was a very, was not in her character. She was not a drinker. But for whatever reason, there's no, she doesn't need an excuse. Like she She's can drink. young. She's young. I do it all the time. She was, yeah, she was 27 and she just decided she wanted to drink that night. And yeah. Like, Legal. Yeah. Who fucking cares? But it was a thing that was out of character. So I think maybe that made them nervous because maybe she wasn't necessarily going to be that great at handling alcohol and that's, that's dangerous true. and stuff. Yeah, especially if you're hitchhiking home and you're drunk. Well, this, she actually wasn't hitchhiking. So her in her story, she left with two of her guy friends whose names are Victor and Keith. According to the testimony, the vehicle they were driving in, I think they were going to get more liquor or something, mm. got caught in a mud puddle and they spent hours trying to free it. Keith himself was at some point spotted walking down the road covered in mud and water from the chest down by a passerby. So these guys are sticking to this story. The men insist that at some point in the night when they were trying to get the car out, Mackie got frustrated and annoyed and decided she was just going to walk back to Tachi on her own without them. Wow. I mean, I could see both cases. Yeah. Like many times I've been like, you know, I fuck you guys. I'm walking home. Yeah, totally. I uh, they are never I don't think they've ever been completely cleared but it seems like it, what they're saying is also kind of plausible especially if it's in a truck like up to the mud yeah. in my chest it's probably a big ass mud hole yeah it's a it's a creepy image though you're walking just driving by and seeing that dude because that's also looks shady as hell yes it does but according to the RCMP a forestry worker saw Mackie walking on the road mid-morning the next day there's no way to confirm that it was her, but that was what a trucker thought they saw. Mm -hmm. And it, if that is her, it was the, the last time anyone saw her. There are a million theories of what have happened to her. 
the cops fortunately acted pretty quickly on this one, but when they didn't get answers pretty quickly, they there was no nothing ever was really deduced, and they sort of just moved on from it. There are mo- multiple people who are suspicious here, including a guy who is allegedly quote unquote kind of obsessed with Mackie, who people say exhibited strange behavior after she disappeared before packing up and leaving for good. Oh yeah, and then she had just left her her husband very recently, which was um un. They, people were surprised. They didn't expect it to happen. Oh, so she left her husband. Of course she wanted to go have a drink. She's a newly divorced right, woman. Right. And then this guy is really interested in her and they started acting weird and then left shortly after. Yeah. And Man. so there's no proof at any point that any of these people are suspects, but there are a lot of questionable things that happened. And also it could just be, again, the, the cops were trying to push the theory that she was lost. She got lost. She got turned around in the dark and got off the path and got taken. But her family spent years searching the area where she was last seen. Yeah, and you'd see bones or you something. Would never, like, yeah, and they had you know, people, like dog searching and stuff, and there was never any sign of her blood, no clothing tears, nothing like that. So it's it would be kind of strange, but it's not impossible. It's huge forests, and there's definitely terrifying animals everywhere. But... We don't know. So I I think at some point I want to visit that story again. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. So those are a few of the cases. And now we have to go to, so who doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is unsurprisingly complicated. In all likeliness, there are many things at work. One is some are leaving of their own accord, most certainly. Some people are just leaving. Yeah, um, like, fuck this town. The family wanted to start a new life, wanted whatever, for whatever reason. There's also a likeliness that, like, we were just talking about, the elements sometimes probably have a, a role in these cases. Like, with Mackie, that's a theory. It's highly contested, but, you know, there's, like, I can, I personally would get lost in the forest immediately. Absolutely. Um, and... Even though a lot of these women would probably know the forest a little better than I would, I can still imagine it would be not that hard to get lost. I'm sure some of the cases were people just getting turned around, going to a party, having a couple, turning around in the woods. Yeah. But, you know, they still deserve to be found and for people's resources to go towards them. And then, of course, a woman is most likely to be killed or taken by someone she knows. And that's definitely also likely in a number of these cases. For example... One of the missing women, Lana Patrick Derrick, who we haven't talked about, uh, her former boyfriend committed suicide shortly after her disappearance in 1995, like hours afterwards. He's never been formally charged with anything, but it's a little suspicious that right after she goes missing, he commits suicide. Mm. So, you know, and but that that 
case has also really not been looked into that deeply. Um, some spouses have even been charged, like in the case of Wendy Ann Twist Rate, who disappeared from Prince George in 97. She's still technically a missing person because her body's never been recovered, but her husband, Dennis Rate, confessed to, quote, shooting his wife and dumping her naked body in a swamp. Yay. Yay. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's cool. Sometimes it pays to be single. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of times it is a spouse. Um, we still don't know where she is and it, we just have to presume that he's being he's honest. Just, yeah. That honest. he did it. Yeah. So he's in jail at least. And then we have serial killers. It's not a serial killer though. It's multiple serial killers. In this sweet little touristy town, just hanging out. Yeah, when all of these in this whole Highway 16 area, we got serial killers coming out the wazoo. Mm. I guess they just, it just draws people because of the woods and stuff uh, and the way stationness of it. So I want to first just mention uh, Robert Picton quickly. If you don't know a lot about him, Lost Podcast does a really great series on that turd bag. Um, <laughs> His farm is actually quite a bit south from Highway 16, like a 12-hour drive. But since he murdered primarily sex workers, they came from all over the place, including the Highway of Tears. Uh, his crimes were done mostly on his property because he would hold these huge raves and stuff, and it would draw all these people. It would be like 1,200 people parties. I've definitely been to raves out in the woods. Have you been to Robert Picton's raves? <laughs> um, They're all the scariest parties I've ever been to. Let's, oh, yeah, de yeah, definitely. I mean, this guy was a literal serial killer holding mm. them. So he wasn't going up to Highway of Tears to get women, but... They'd come to him. Yeah, there there was, I think, actually confirmed at least a couple of the women who were found... Oh, not found. They were missing. They... <laughs> This is a he's a whole story. He's a whole ass story. But basically, he fed a lot of his victims to the pigs on his farm. Mm. I guess so they, a smart way to get rid of it. For a while, it worked. He killed 49 women. 49? Yeah. Um, so they ended up doing DNA tests on families of missing women. And some of them were discovered to have been on the property. So some of those cases that, that I'm, I'm not even considering missing cases anymore were closed because they were missing until their DNA was found on his farm. And that's just the people who DNA they found. Like, I'm yeah. sure there's so many women before then. Yeah, he claims 49 and they have 49 on the, the books, but it could be way, way more. more. Um, so then we have another guy named Bobby Jack Fowler. Bobby was an alcoholic, drug addicted rapist and possible serial killer that was active in the United States and Canada from 1969 to 96. He is suspected of 16 murders in British Columbia and Oregon. Epina caught wind of him pretty quickly and with good reason. His DNA was found on the body of Colleen McMillan, who was a murder victim. Police say Fowler has been ruled out as a suspect in eight of the 18 cases, but is a strong suspect in two other cases, mm. the deaths of Gail Ways and Pamela Darlington, both killed in 1973. So he remains a suspect in as many as 10 other cases. And we'll never probably know because he died in prison uh, from lung cancer. Yeah, yeah. So smoking in prison? Go fuck yourself, Bobby. Then we got the next piece of shit over here. I bet there's a lot of prison ghosts. I mean, there's lots of ghost hunting in prison, like abandoned prisons. Yeah, because all yeah. those people that died in prison. Yeah. And then imagine like you get sentenced for whatever and then they close the door at night and it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of anger, a lot of um, really broken people, probably people who are mad who were like wrongly convicted. Yeah. 
I would, if I was wrongly convicted in prison, I would stay and haunt everybody forever. I'd be so fucking pissed. Yeah, I'd make everybody scared. It'd be fun. I'd have a fun time with it. Then we have Gary Taylor Handlin. Gary is a convicted rapist who is known to pick up hitchhikers. He has been linked to murders near Highway 16 and on Native reservations. According to a CBC News article on September 24th, 1975, Catherine Mary Herbert, age 11, was on her way home when she was abducted in Abbotsford, British Columbia. Her mm-hmm. body was found in November under some rotting boards on the Matsqui Indian Reserve, north of Abbotsford. Gary Hanlon knew Herbert's family through a teenage girl he was dating, mm. Yum, who was living with the Herbert family. In January of 2019, Gary was convicted for the first-degree murder of Monica Jack, a 12-year-old girl who was last seen riding her bike along the Highway of Tears in 1978. It's quite possibly killed more girls, but only time will tell. 11 and 12 years old. That's crazy. Who can look at a child and be like, I will kill them? I mean, they treat them like adults up there. Yeah. They really do. They're, I mean, they're hitchhiking at 11. Some of those girls are, are sex... Not. I, I can't even say sex workers. They're being child trafficked or, yes. you know... But yeah, they're they're they they make them grow up really fast and it sucks. Then we have Brian Arp. Arp is a convicted murderer who was charged with the deaths of Marnie Blanchard and Teresa Umphrey. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. He has been since denied parole for bad behavior. I just why would you be let him out? It's possible that he had other victims in Prince George area that he's not been linked to yet. I am actually very like I I'm very pro prison reform. I think a lot of people should be released from prison. But if you are a person who compulsively needs to kill, especially kids, um, you can't be on the street. You yeah, don't, you don't reform from that. You have a div, like severe mental issue. They need to be taken away from the rest of the world for yeah. our safety. Exactly. It's not even just like out of punishment it's like they are a danger yeah you can't have them around yes yeah edward dennis isaac edward a convicted serial killer was charged with the murder of rose with the jean mary kovacs and nina marie joseph all three women went missing from the prince george area in the early 1980s and he could be responsible for more and then we have this last one who this guy is one of the creepiest motherfuckers i've ever seen so this kid's name Cody Legbokov. I don't know how to say his last name. Cody Legbokov. Legbokov. Is it German? It looks kind of German. Yeah. He looks he looks pretty German. Mm-hmm. Um, he's another convicted serial killer that was active in the Prince George area. He's one of Canada's youngest serial killers, being only 20 years old when he was apprehended in 2010. Wow. According to a National Post article, he was caught only because an alert young RCMP constable, Aaron Kaler, stopped. Legopikov's truck when he spotted it roaring onto a highway in remote northern BC. During the stop, he noticed blood on Legopikov's... Oh my God, do I have to keep saying this? We can just call him Lego. Lego, shorts and legs. Blood that the young man claimed was from a deer he'd poached. But Kaler, suspicious, dispatched a conservation officer to search the bush. And there, he did not find a dead deer. He found a 15-year-old girl's body. That girl was Lauren Don Leslie, who had been apparently met him on a social media app that I've never heard of called Nexopia. Nexopia. But I think it's, I've read it's Canadian. It's sort of geared towards teenagers. Ew. Yeah. She was legally blind and was the first of his victims to not be an adult sex worker that we know of. One of his victims' bodies has never been found, and Cody attempted to use this information as leverage to change his sex offender classification, which for whatever reason, I don't really know because he's in, he's got a life sentence. I don't know why he cares about being a sex offender. 
He refuses to offer the information unless his terms are met. His cold, callous demeanor demonstrated at such a young age proves that it's possible he has had more victims along Highway 16. Oh, yeah. If he's so confident. He is really creepy. And hopefully he'll never be on the streets again because he's the kind of kid you hear about his story and he, you can definitely tell he's the kind of person who would just immediately go do the same thing oh, as soon yeah. as he got out. And then say, I'm sorry. And, and then not just even not care. Yeah. Um, he was like a... He looks like sort of a uh, like a broy kind of Canadian hockey player. He was a hockey player in high school. Pretty popular, just like a guy who would have bullied me in high school. Like, but really, just vanilla looking white dude with big fluffy hair, mm. blonde hair. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had roommates. He had friends. He's considered pretty standard as a human. And he and his off time was. He killed like four or five sex workers. Oh, wow. That's a hobby. I wonder if you can put that on a college application process. <laughs> He'll never know. So, yeah. And he was only 20 years old when they caught him. So he was really he's a he's a like sick man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this girl was his first child victim that we know about. Legally blind. Yeah. Mm. And so. uh there's a solid chance that he may have done some more damage because unfortunately these cases are still occurring. Um, there's been missing cases as recent as uh, last year. And I don't, I don't know that there's been any in 2020. There might be, but, and there's, I'm, there probably has been, but the ones that have been actually stated from the police that these are missing cases, they've been happening nonstop still. Um, and this also of course is bigger than highway 16. So official reports state that between 1980 and 2012, almost 1,200 Aboriginal women have gone missing or been killed. Oh, my God. But the Native Women's Association of Canada estimates it closer to 4,000. Yeah, because remember the blurry picture of the young lady before? A lot of people are just like not documented. Right. Um, The rural towns they live in. They can't even get... the police to notice or to listen at all. Or even care. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they estimate it's actually closer to 4,000 women over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And if you want to hear about another one that's very similar story, uh, but on Highway 6, which is more near like Michigan instead of uh, Washington, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a girl named Jennifer Catchway that has a pretty contemporary missing story that sucks but there's some good documentaries about it so yeah this continues to go on and and there's not been a whole lot of help from government although trudeau did start something called the national inquiry into missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in 2016 and it was basically like inviting everyone to come and give their testimony about their family and loved ones who've been missing also, I mean, there's a million grassroots movements. Yeah. Like they have to. They do these long marches down Highway 16. A lot of the the mothers of missing women and stuff. They they do these like remembrance, like to raise awareness. So these women just like will walk down this. The more you for talk months. about it, the more they see the pictures. Yeah. It might jog people's memory. Maybe yeah. somebody in another state will say like, "Oh, I saw her in Florida." Exactly. Because a lot of these kids they'll go missing in Canada and then wind up in Mexico or right. Spain across the world. Yeah. Hopefully, living their best life. <laughs> maybe at least one, influencer. one or two of them. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe one one of them flipped it into something like that. 
so yeah, so they that that continues on. That so they have some of these movements within the government. There still really is no bus system, which to me seems like the most pressing. Like, yes, we definitely need to deal with the terrible humans who are doing this. But if we can at least get them on buses to go from place to place, you solve so many crimes. If just one, because it's what a four-hour drive down well, that. Uh, it's about a, between the two princes. It's about a seven and a half hour. Seven drive. And a half, so one bus once a day. Say maybe it leaves 9 a.m. and it drives seven hours and then somebody else right. drives 9, 10, 11, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2, 3, 4. So then like 5 o'clock, 9 a.m. from one side over there, switch drivers, 5 p.m. to the other side. Right. That's it. And, and, and more of an interactive bus system inside of the towns and like maybe a t- one that goes from the nearest town to the next nearest town. And, you know, just, man, we got to get these 89-year-old women off the street hitchhiking. Yes. It's fucking awful, man. So I don't know. I I would like to see what will happen in that spirit. Um, and then is on the show, we're always going to try to push you guys towards maybe if you're more interested about hearing about what you can do to help or just like hear more about the stories. You can obviously, to hear more about these stories, you can find a lot of information online. The The book Highway of Tears, like I have been referencing this whole time, is a really great reference. Um, there is a website called Hue and Cry, which I found a lot of really great information on. The CDC podcast network has done some great ones, including Finding Cleo. There's a really great resource called Echo's Path that I found, and I really thank them for their comprehensive work. Um, I got some of the information about the serial killers from there. Um, and if you want to donate, there is a, an organization called It Starts With Us. I will link the website because it's sort of like a bunch of letters mm-hmm. that I can't remember. It's not it starts with us.com. No. Yeah. Um so you can donate to them and it is that is basically a grassroots campaign that's a continuation of a group called Sisters in Spirit that is just basically disbanded because it was a group of native women who were essentially given funding by the government. And then the government cut the funding. Cool. And then the government was like, you can't use that name anymore. And they were like, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for your help. Um, so they basically had to rebrand their, their like charity, basically. Um, so now it's called It Starts With Us. And their first statement on their website is, we acknowledge the women, families, and communities who have been doing this organization themselves for decades, especially when police and governments have failed to acknowledge listen or act despite indigenous women to spirit and trans people that continue to disappear or be murdered. Generations of work have brought us to where we are and continue to teach us how we must work forward in achieving justice together. So they uh, are accepting donations, but you can send uh, PayPal to It Starts With Us and I will send you the link to that. And um, yeah, I just want to thank you guys for going on this journey with me. It sucks. <laughs> yeah, and you've been doing a lot of research on this. At cold and dark and alone. Yeah, I think that's going to be a lot of the research I do on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I also wanted to throw in, um, they have a <laughs> their Canadian version of whitewashing. They call it maple washing. <laughs> oh, really? That's <laughs> But that's their version of saying they're sort of glossing over all of the horrible shit that's happened to Native people over the generations to make the history books look in favor of, like, make, basically make Canadians look like the little kind, polite people that they say they are. And, and guess what, bitches? Y'all are as bad as we are. <laughs> yes, they are. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, uh, 
well, we'll be happy to have you next week. And our next, we'll probably come back to some of these stories later on in the future. Uh, I've got an entirely different case coming next week. Very so excited about that one. Yeah, it's definitely a, a wild ride. Yeah. And uh, I'm Natalie Jean. You can find me at the Natty Jean and someplace underneath um, Instagram and TikTok and Amber. Um, Amber Sophia Nelson. I'm Amber Smelson, S-M-E-L-S-O-N, on Twitter, Instagram. I also have a Patreon where I teach you, it's five bucks a month, and I teach you like hacks to save money, cook for yourself, how to shop for yourself. Um, yeah, how Hell to yeah. do good things for yourself. I need you to do that for me. I still don't know how to shop for myself. I can shop for you. Oh, okay. That's okay. better. <laughs> All right. Bye. Peace. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.